Welcome to the Human Strike Back by Hotchar, the weekly podcast designed to help you succeed by putting people first. I'm David Peralta, and I am super excited to introduce today's guests, Neelima Bhatt and Raj Shisodia, the co-authors of Shakti Leadership, who join me today to talk about the need for businesses and leaders to incorporate qualities that are traditionally considered to be more feminine, qualities like empathy, compassion, caring, vulnerability, and even love. Raj and Neelima have plenty of research and studies that show how companies that embody these qualities significantly outperform businesses that prize domination, competition, aggression, results, and winning at all costs. And this is across the board in terms of stock price, employee engagement, employee loyalty, customer advocacy, and more. These two make such a powerful case for the need to bring a people-first mindset into every aspect of business that if I could make this episode required listening for business leaders, I would. So listen in, and if you haven't already, join us in the THSB Facebook group to let us know what you think. Just search Facebook for The Human Strike Back, and you'll find us. So without further ado, here are Raj and Neelima. So I'd love to ask you both a little bit about what your what your backgrounds are and what led you to uh, to connect with each other, and uh, and why don't we start with Nilima? Well, I had a corporate background, and I joke that I'm a corporate refugee. Uh, after ten years of uh, really uh, achieving a lot uh, very quickly, I hit a crisis uh, of existential questioning. Am I making a difference? I'm earning a lot of money, but uh, does it really matter? Does it have impact? And that began a journey to uh, meaning and purpose and uh, study of yoga and Vedanta and, you know, very deep uh, journey of inner transformation that began in 1998 that I haven't uh, come out of yet. So that's my background. Um, at a glo- I have, I've worked with global multinationals and... Uh, and then when I met Raj uh, through the conscious capitalism uh, movement, um, I realized between us, you know, I'm the yogini and he's the PhD. And uh, it makes a great combination to be able to write a book uh, on how do you bring more feminine values and behaviors to the workplace, to work cultures, to leadership, just to restore balance. Do you mind? Do you mind if I ask you what was it exactly that led to this existential crisis? What was what was going on in your life at the time? Um, I was finally doing the best work of my career. I was looking after corporate communications across twenty five countries, Asia Pacific, based out of Singapore. I was working for ESB and Star Sports, and um, I just had a sense of uh, failure. Um, so that's what it was. It was like how it was so dissonant for me that. I ticked all the boxes, and yet I I didn't feel I was really successful. And so, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because I mean, it sounds I understand what you're saying, but I'd like to hear from your perspective. On the outside, everything was going well, and yet inwardly, you were feeling like a failure. Uh, actually, uh, even on the outside, it was uh, I'd been a super successful person, and for the first time, I found myself. The work uh, just got very stressful. Um, I had people I was working with who just overnight felt like I lost connection with them. It was a real, it was a, it was a mystery to me. And I, I still can't explain it today. And on hindsight, uh, now I see every time I'm in 
an inexplicable situation like that, I know that something deeper is at work. So uh, I don't want to use, you know, talk about, you know, people being wrong or bad or any such thing because I'd rather not go into that. But uh, it just was overnight going from being a very successful person uh, to feeling like my work wasn't good enough anymore when I know that it was the best work of my career. And that's what started you on a journey to look for different answers and a different way of... Yeah, I was like, absolutely. It was like, what is success? If I know what I'm doing is as good as uh, it can be, then uh, if it's not being seen as that and not being valued as that, then who am I? What is my sense of self-worth based on? And for the first time, I started really questioning uh, my own... um, my own sense of self and my own sense of self-worth. And Raj, what about, what about you? What's your background and what led you into this line of work and conscious capitalism and the work that you're doing with Neelima? Yeah, so I've been a business professor for about actually 33 years now, surprisingly. Um, surprising to me, that is. <laughs> it goes by quick. Um, and I kind of became a business professor, I would say somewhat by accident, in the sense that you know, there was an opportunity I learned about. You can go to the U.S. and get a PhD in business and you get a full scholarship. And, you know, so having lived here as a kid, I wanted to come back. And that was an avenue to do so uh, without having to pay for it. And uh, so I did. But, you know, having kind of backed into that and just opportunistically done it, I really did not have a vision or a purpose guiding me down that path. Uh, And therefore, as I got into it, I was somewhat able to look at it with a beginner's mind as well as with somewhat skeptical eyes. And I didn't, I just didn't buy the whole narrative, you know. Which narrative do you mean? Well, the narrative of business is just about making money, that it's a dog-eat-dog world and that only the paranoid can survive and the whole sort of military language and metaphor, you know, the sort of violent communications that happens in the context of business, you know, everything. That whole way of being simply didn't resonate with me in terms of just who I was as a, as a child and then, you know, uh, to some degree as an adult. Um, the lack of trust, you know, the lack of belief in people, the using of people, the constant conflict, the adversarial mindset. So uh, with that questioning, I, I, I used to, and I became a marketing professor because I didn't like finance. So marketing was a field which particularly seem to be rife with all kinds of problems, you know, unethical practices, a lot of tremendous waste of money, environmental uh, damage. You know, we were spending in 2005 a trillion dollars on marketing in this country. That was the GDP of India. Okay, we were spending that on ads, coupons, and junk mail, which is cutting down forests to, to give you coupons for air fresheners, you know. Um, it just seemed crazy. And out, you know, ridiculous amount of money to spend. A billion people can live on what we're spending on this. So what are we getting? We must be getting something great for it. We're not getting anything really. Customers, companies, and society are not benefiting from that. So that questioning led me down a path. And so I did a, a bunch of academic research on that. But then I also was writing a practitioner book related to that, which was focusing on everything that was wrong with marketing. I had already done a book called Does Marketing Need Reform? Then I was starting a second book called The Shame of Marketing, (laughs) which was talk about self-loathing, right? Um, But it was a phrase used by Peter Drucker, who's a well-known management thinker. He referred to the consumer movement as the shame of marketing. Mm -hmm. 
is that marketing's job is to look after the well-being of customers. And so the fact that customers have to organize against companies is the shame. But fortunately, I got some very good advice from my mentor uh, who said, you know, Raj, in America, people want to hear about the solution and not the problem. A simple insight, but profound for me. So I just turned that around and I called it in search of marketing excellence. And I said, most companies spend too much, but get lousy outcomes uh, you know, in terms of customer loyalty and trust. So which are the companies that are the opposite, that don't spend a ton of money and yet have great customer loyalty and trust? So that start, started me down a path of finding companies like that and eventually discovered that these companies actually have not just that in common. There are many other things in common. The employees love them too. Communities embrace them. Suppliers are loyal to them. Uh, so they have this stakeholder mindset and they have a reason for being which is why they don't need to spend all this money convincing people that they're good. You know, they're, they're doing something worth doing, which people resonate with, as do their employees, and everybody resonates with their purpose. So the idea of a higher purpose, and then leaders who actually care about people and purpose and not just about power and money, and cultures that are rooted in trust and caring and not filled with fear and stress. So we kind of discovered these, what eventually became the pillars or tenets of conscious capitalism through looking at these. And that book was Firms of Endearment. It, it eventually was published under that title. And at the end of the research, having found companies like that, our financial indi- uh, uh, analysis uh, showed that these companies are actually more successful. In fact, dramatically so in the long term, which was a surprise to us. In fact, a shock because they were paying their people better. They're investing in customers, investing in suppliers, communities, environment, paying taxes at a higher rate, etc. And yet they're making more money as well. And so that became a pretty significant story. And so that book then led to me connecting with uh, the Whole Foods CEO. Now, as part of that, I I realized at some point that uh, these companies actually reflect a lot of values, which we might call feminine values, nurturing, caring, compassion, empathy, even love. They use these words. And we know these are all human qualities, but they're identified as more feminine. And I saw them contrary to the traditional language of business, which was extremely masculine, hyper-masculine, domination, aggression, competition, winning results at all costs, everything is a battle and a war. I said, this is this reflects, conscious capitalism reflects in some ways the rise of feminine values in the world. And, and you know, you could see that also in the rise of women in terms of education, access to women are six, almost 60% of college students now. And they get much higher grades and graduate at a higher rate. So every white-collar profession, just as a matter of you know uh, demo- demo- demographics, is going to be statistically dominated by women. And with that will come a change in society. When you have a few women, then they have to conform to the sort of patriarchal model, right? They have to be more tougher and more aggressive than the most aggressive men. But when they are enough and there's a critical mass, then they can be authentic, actually, and lead the way there that comes naturally and a lot of research showing that that indeed is is now even if you remove the labels masculine feminine that what people want in leadership are those qualities what, what kind of what kind of research do you mean could you well so there's a book called the athena doctrine for example uh, where they did 60,000 interviews around the world 30,000 actually asking what is masculine what is feminine and 30,000 just asking what are the traits of good leaders and then they correlated those two and they found a strong correlation between the so-called feminine values and uh, good leadership, but also with ethics and morality and with happiness, right? So those qualities are correlated with all of these things. And those are the ones that have been suppressed and sidelined 
in terms of not having women, but also men not having permission to express those things in the workplace because they were seen as weak. And uh, so, so with all of that, and Nilima had been approaching it uh, from a slightly different angle around what's called Shakti, which is sort of this notion of the divine feminine power that animates everything. And uh, had been writing a column on that in, in, in an Indian newspaper, and uh, and we had been friends for a few years. The idea, she raised the possibility of writing this book together, so we did. So Nilima, can you can you introduce us to the concept of Shakti leadership? The idea of Shakti is uh, well known in the world of yoga, and yoga has taken over the world. Now everyone knows the word yoga, and when we wrote this book, we were kind of hoping the world will now know Shakti. So if you look around the world and you diagnose the problem at the heart of all conflict, it's essentially power games. It's win-lose power games. Really, the game is about power, but we are uh, playing a very unhealthy kind of power. It's uh, power over versus power with, right? And uh, it, it occurred to me that on one hand, everyone's fighting over, uh, you know, what they think is a limited resource and that there isn't enough to go around for everybody. And on the other hand, I know through my own experience and through the whole world of yoga that there is this infinite uh, amount of creative energy that uh, is animating this entire uh, existence and evolution. And it's not just moving stars and planets and your own atoms and electrons, but it's also the fuel behind your emotions and your thoughts and it animates consciousness itself that there is all this energy going and it's intelligent and it's called Shakti. It has, it's an, you know, in using uh, more Western language, you could say these are like a transpersonal archetypal forces, right? That uh, you can enter into relationship with, you can learn to align yourself with. And uh, if you do that, it's literally as if evolution's got your back. And you can create uh, things way beyond anything uh, your mini-me, your personal ego could have come up with. So if leadership is about essentially uh, achieving impact and desired outcomes, then you need to exercise power. So we can't run away from the idea of power and say it's a bad thing and let's not talk about power. We have no choice but to work with power. The thing is, we've got to learn to exercise true power, you know, Shakti versus ego-based false power, which is privileges and, you know, who's bigger, who's stronger, who's got more money, who's got the bigger rank. Uh, That's all privilege-based power, which eventually you run out of. It's finite. And uh, to really step away from that power base and to step in, to this infinite power base of Shakti. Uh, But that requires a certain preparation. That requires a certain readiness, a certain worthiness. Uh, Because as they say, with great power comes great responsibility. So it's not for anyone to just plug into and, uh, you know, uh, drive away on. Uh, You have to be deeply present. You have to do the inner work of transformation and presencing and becoming very mindful of how you give and take power. How are you exercising power in each conversation, in each transaction? Are you doing power with 
where it's a win-win. Both sides emerge uh, more expanded and better than uh, each one by themselves. You know, so one has to know how to access and then how to embody and then how to manifest Shakti. That requires practice and training, and that's what the book is outlined. So I definitely want to dive deeper into into those aspects. How do you how do you tap into this? How do you embody this? What does it look like when you embody this? But I'm I'm also wondering at the moment. So first of all, I, I happen to to follow the same the same belief. I actually spent uh, several years with an Indian teacher. I lived in India uh, for for two years uh, in a small village three hours north of Bangalore. Uh, and I was learning very similar concepts, not as it applies to business, but as it applies to life. And so I resonate very deeply with uh, with what you're saying. Um, and right now, I'm wondering for our audience who's going to be listening to this, who maybe hasn't already had an introduction to this, who maybe has some kind of spiritual background, maybe they don't have a spiritual background, this concept of of an infinite power source that that animates everything in my mind, this is actually something quite literal. It's not figurative. But how do we, how do we talk about this concept in a way that's, that's, that's accessible and understandable to anybody, regardless of whether they have a spiritual background or not? So just to backtrack to, uh, before that, to complete what I was sharing, the reason this power is considered feminine is because uh, it's the power from which all uh, creation has emanated in the yogic uh, understanding. So anything that produces life, the creative force, uh, of, of evolution, uh, because it creates, it's akin to a mother principle, to a feminine principle. So therefore, we call the force, we call Shakti, the divine mother, and um, the consciousness with which it moves and it's exercised, that witness consciousness with which it is uh, held, uh, that is called Shiva, the divine masculine principle. So one is incomplete without the other, and they are inherent in each other. Okay, so just to let everyone know that it's not like there is a feminine without a masculine. There is no Shakti without Shiva, and there is no Shiva without Shakti. Now, to answer your question, um, it's it's not it's not a spiritual thing so much as simply becoming mindful of how uh, you're showing up as a leader. And at any moment, you can be coming from one of two places. You can either be in your ego, where you are threatened by a situation. And uh, if you don't have the coping resources to deal with a challenge, you can either go to your gut and want to get into fight flight, or you can go into your heart and want to self-promote and be validated and liked or you can get into your head and you get into fear and anxiety and worry or shame and guilt. So there are many ways in which we basically uh, lose our authentic core. We lose our uh, source. We lose our center. Okay. So uh, I just say that's becoming absent. Whereas if you can train yourself to return to your center return to that place of presence, that, that moment which is here now, uh, where you have nothing to defend, nothing to promote, nothing to fear, uh, it's as if you are standing in your pure spine and you are simply witnessing reality for what it is. 
Now, this is called mindfulness and there's a lot of training around, you know, you can also observe your breath, to step back from the drama that's around you. But from a Shakti perspective, you're not just present and still in a dead, sterile, inert kind of way. You are also, if you, if you become more sensitive, you recognize that you are feeling very expanded and very alive. And there is a, there is a force, there is an energy that is available to you. And that is the Shakti. And if you can lead from there, if you can apply that force, that energy to that leadership moment, which is a crisis or a challenge, uh, you will notice that you, you just do power differently. You are no longer wanting to be aggressive or to run away. You, you're able to actually share power in that situation. You are able to come from a place of an inclusive compassion, a sense of curiosity and wonder, because you haven't become less in any way. You are still in your place of power. Well, it makes perfect sense to me because these are the experiences that I've had directly. Um, you know, when, I, when I'm able to, to act and come from this, this center, this core, this, uh, this deeper sense of who I really am instead of just who I think I am, uh, things open up. You know, I feel more open. I feel more available. I feel more able to, to observe the situation as it is instead of my interpretations of the situation. And so I'm able to choose my response instead of simply reacting to whatever's happening. And it's like you said, I feel a source of energy that, that keeps me going throughout the day. Whereas otherwise, I would just be getting more and more exhausted and tired because there was nothing fueling me. So I, I definitely resonate with, with what you're saying. And, I, and I'd love to hear from, from you, Raj. What, what is your experience with, uh, with this been? You know, it's been very interesting. It's been kind of mind expanding uh, to think about things in this way. And I've come to realize that, you know, when you are in presence and when you are connected to your essence, right? So you are then linking your unique essence, who you are, your unique self, with kind of this global uh, sense of where things need to go. So the dharma, you know, the dharmic path, the righteous path, right? And when you combine your nature, which uh, is, is called swabhav, with dharma, you get your swadharma, which is your personal path. And when you are there and you only get there through presence and mindfulness and so forth and self-awareness, then you actually become an instrument of something that seeks to emerge. Something needs to emerge in this world. And you having done that work to, to get to that place are now a vehicle for that to emerge. You know, I personally experienced that. I mean, when I wrote Forms of Indiaman, et cetera, I was essentially connecting my essence as who I was as a child and looking at this evidence, this information uh, through those eyes. And I was able to then, in a way, alchemize that into a message which, as Nilima puts it beautifully, that which is deeply personal is also completely universal. So that personal experience is actually now I'm, I'm sort of uh, uh, standing in right, for many, many people for whom that, that's an essential message that they are waiting for. Right? So you become an instrument of something that seeks to emerge. You know, there is a trajectory to evolution. There's a trajectory to you know, human evolution and even uh, planetary and beyond, things are moving in a certain direction. And if we are aligned with that and in harmony with that, and if we can enable that to 
emerge through us, then as Nelima said, we have access to all of that infinite power which is driving that evolution. If we are seeking to do something counter to that, if we're trying to take humanity backwards, and we do have some leaders in the world, I believe, who are doing, trying to do just that right now, whether it's in Russia or parts of Europe or here or other places as well, they are standing, you know, they're not uh, in harmony with the zeitgeist. They are uh, going against the tide of where humanity wants to go and where our own deep humanity, you know, hungers for. And, and therefore, they are, what are they doing? They're stealing power from people. They're deriving it all purely from ego and so forth. And, and that may seem like it's, it's working for a while, but it's not working towards any kind of greater good. And I don't think ultimately it will, it will stand. You know, you talked about the humans fight back, right? I'm reminded of Star Wars. You probably got that from there, right? That is where it came from. We are, we are in that second episode after the Force Awakened second episode is the empire strikes back which is the status quo the patriarchy the old way the empire you know there's an empire energy that has propelled the world in many ways and now we're moving to a healing energy you know we're moving to that mother energy there's the father energy of conquest and domination and uh, expansion uh, but now the mother energy of caring and compassion is is coming in. So I think the third episode, of course, is the return of the Jedi, which is the humans as you're talking <laughs> about, right? So I think there's a temporary uh, setback in that regard. But but ultimately, you know, and this idea, which I hadn't thought much about, but I was I was uh, I, I read a quote uh, recently, and that kind of crystallized it for me: the idea of consciousness as a universal force as opposed to something that gets generated within our individual brains, right? That we create our own sort of consciousness. And this idea that maybe what if it's something like gravity or electromagnetic radiation that's out there? You know, there are many invisible things that we didn't know existed until 100 or 200 years ago, and they've always been there. And what if this is one of them that we haven't quite figured out yet? But there is something that all of us share. And then, of course, we uniquely... uh, connect to it through our own tuning fork, if you will, right? We've got each a different way of tuning into that that universal thing. So so I think the key is we want to be in harmony with all of that and not, you know, in conflict with it. Be in a, as Martin Luther King would have said, you know, the moral arc of the universe, etc. That that whole argument I think aligns with this as well, that there is uh there is kind of an intentionality to this and we can be agents of that unfolding by harnessing our unique place in it. You know, we're playing our role in the symphony, identifying what is our instrument and what is our, you know, and then we hear the same music, we know we know what to create, right? So that's how I've been thinking about it. And again, Nilima is kind of my teacher on this path. <laughs> so you, you, you mentioned something, actually, you mentioned a couple things, and, and that, just to finish that Martin Luther King quote, for those of us who, for those uh, who might not be familiar with it, it's the, the, um, what is it? The moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. That's right. Yeah. Right. And you mentioned also something about how the, the masculine qualities are, are about domination, conquest, grabbing power. But those are the negative aspects yes. of, the, right. of, the, right. of the masculine energy, because there's also positive qualities as well, which I think uh, Nilima was mentioning. You know, it's this, this stillness, this peace, this ability to simply observe what's going on without reacting. And strength and courage and resilience and, uh, you know, focus and all of this. So there are many beautiful masculine qualities. So this is not about re- getting rid of the positive masculine. But so unfortunately, we have strayed into the hyper-masculine 
way too often in human history. And, you know, I think we're starting to change. I mean, we had 1,200 wars between European nations in 600 years until 1946. And since then, we've had zero. So there's something changing, right? The recourse to war is the answer. It never is the answer. So I think we are moving in that direction of letting go of the hyper-masculine, retaining the mature masculine, but finally elevating the mature feminine. I think it's some other energy that's been missing. So if I take it back to conscious capitalism, capitalism had a father and a mother. And they were both embodied in the same person, Adam Smith. Right? Which can happen, right? I mean, this is not the sole purview of men and women. The same person can embody the the, the so-called feminine and masculine or the opposite of what you might expect. But he embodied both and he wrote two books. One was purely or mostly focused on the father energy of self-interest and achievement and freedom and you know, all of that. That's the wealth of nations. But the theory of moral sentiments came first, 17 years before the wealth of nations. And that was about the human need to care. And that was the mother energy that got ignored. And capitalism was built on this one pillar of you know, the self-interest. And as Nilima has pointed out, in a patriarchal society, we tend to ignore our mothers and we tend to emulate our fathers whether you're a boy or girl. I mean, you tend to go, you know, you dismiss. And I think we dismissed that, we left that aside. And so we built this whole system on one pillar, which is the less human half of being human. And hence we ran into all of the the challenges, the unions, socialism, communism, all of that arose as a response to that one-dimensional and and lower consciousness way of, uh, of capitalism. And now I think we have the opportunity to restore that wholeness to capitalism. And we add a third pillar of purpose. Increasingly now, more and more people are driven by purpose as well. And I think that fits in with caring and self-interest. So I'd love to move this from the, from the theoretical in, into the practical. What does it look like for a company to embody both of these principles, both masculine and feminine? Because Obviously, if you have masculine without feminine, it goes out of balance. It turns in a negative direction. But I'm guessing, actually, I'm not guessing. I know if you have feminine without masculine, then you also have instability and, and um, other things which aren't, which aren't balanced. So what does it look like for a company to have both, practically speaking? And do either of you have any concrete examples of companies that embody this? And what are they doing differently? I mean, I can think of one, if, if you, uh, I, can, I can take uh, an initial cut at that. I definitely think there's a combination of both that you need. So you need the toughness. And Nilima again came up with a beautiful phrase that, cap- that captures it, that you need to be the wise fool of tough love, right? You need toughness and love at the same time. So these are polarities, right? And we need to integrate. This is not, you know, it can't be bipolar. We need to actually have both. So we need toughness and we need love. We need wisdom, but we also need the likeness of spirit, the childlike. And a company that embodies that, I believe, more than anybody else is Southwest Airlines. Okay, Southwest Airlines' stock market symbol is love. And that culture of love permeates the place. They love our customers, love our employees, love. But they are also a fierce company when it comes to doing the right thing. They, they say they, we have a warrior's heart, right? And, of, you know, so they have a fun-loving attitude combined with uh, sort of that peaceful warrior. I mean, they had to fight tremendous battles to be able to uh, survive in a world of crony capitalism where the market was protected for the big, you know, existing airlines, etc. So they they struggled for many years to do that. So again, they, they fight for what's right. They have that strength and courage to do so, but they're always coming from a place of love 
in their culture and it shows in the results the most successful airline in the history of the world 50 years never laid off anybody has always been profitable always growing and had their first casualty in 50 years 3 weeks ago not one person had died and that's almost unheard of for an airline to have that kind of record over 50 years right so i think they embody all of that and you know i interviewed both herb and colleen barrett who was the president and herb keller who was the long time ceo and colleen said you know herb was the dad and i was the mom that's how we ran the company you know and herb himself embodies all the love etc too but he was kind of that loving father and she was kind of that loving but also strict mother and it worked beautifully and i think uh, there are quite a few uh, that's i think the most uh, clear example with their i would say every conscious company embodies that they're not afraid to use the word love but they also are willing and able to do what what is necessary in giving a tough love right they could be able to embody that as well as martin luther king said we must be tough minded and tender hearted mm. at the same time and i think these kind of costco is like that you know container store whole foods all of these companies nilima do you have do you have anything to add i was going to actually play on the other side you know he's given you the good example so i was going to say how does it work when it's not there good point so um they can i've, I've seen companies that have been uh, overly masculine and paid a price and then overly feminine and paid a price so i guess the overly masculine and uh, you know it it was a great uh, time i had there so i don't want to talk down on it in any way but just if you diagnose it from this lens it was a sport uh television things so it was very much lots of libido lots of boys you know you know even if they're older men they're behaving like boys and um so if you look at the wise pool of tough love as the right kind of mix needed to balance and be whole uh, there was a lot of tough there's a lot of fool <laughs> there wasn't enough love and there wasn't much wise at all and uh, that's why i guess i simply no longer belonged there because my soul was hungry and was seeking wisdom and seeking love you know so you know answering the question you had asked earlier what was the existential crisis it was my spirit whose hunger was no longer being satisfied you know i was just a misfit in that culture um if i look at a hyper feminine kind of organization Uh, raj and i know this uh, startup that you know bunch of really young wonderful people wanting to do a tech startup and uh, all they did was every third day they were in retreats and there was a lot of you know let's talk about this and you know um, and really nothing much got done it was it was just all getting entangled in this let's just keep talking let's keep you know there was a lot of love uh and there was a lot of kind of even wisdom but perhaps it was wisdom not coming from a sufficient ground of maturity actually so it was you know uh it was an immature calling upon wisdom and therefore incomplete and um really what they were missing was some good tough a good tough masculine energy you know saying hey guys all that is very well but what is the task and who's going to be doing what by when are we making people responsible and accountable you know responsible is the ability is you know um the ability to respond to a task but accountability is to be held accountable for a deadline for a level of uh, product uh, productivity uh for a level of quality 
you know uh, and if if you simply don't have someone who's bringing in that kind of energy the entire culture of that place and then you're such fine good people you know and just just not getting anywhere for the longest time so you know i just thought i should i've seen this i've seen both these first hand and if you just diagnose it from this lens of wise fool tough love and what is it that you need to dial up and what is it that you need to dial down right there you can diagnose any any problem or any you know any anything that a company is stuck in you can use this uh, fourfold lens so that's that's really helpful to hear both an example of a company that's doing it right and has that balance and also companies that go the wrong way by having too much of one without the other and from personal experience i have to say that being here at hotjar the company that uh, i'm working with now that's uh, that's allowing us to to create this podcast it has exactly that blend that you're talking about even though nobody has ever thought about it this way nobody's ever mentioned masculine or feminine but there is this really powerful blend of getting things done and making sure that we're focused on executing and that people are responsible for things but at the same time there's a very very deep caring aspect about the people who make up the company uh we actually just had a call about this yesterday uh you know a one hour call every week we have uh you know a free form call where we we talk about you know all kinds of things and this is one of these things that we were talking about so there was that space to discuss to share to bring up you know how we're feeling about the company to give feedback uh and then at the same time once the call is done we get back to work and we we execute so that the company can move forward uh and thrive so i i I can see this I I can see the the exact qualities that you're talking about embodied in this company but now what I'm wondering is let's say the three of us decide that we're going to start a company tomorrow uh how do we create a company that embodies both of these qualities both the masculine and the feminine well I mean I can take a step so it has to do with leadership and culture right so we need leaders who themselves embody all of this uh so wise full of tough love is one way to uh, screen or look at people by the way our the us leader right now trump uh, would be in that same box he's he's tough and he's foolish he's incapable of the wisdom and the love right, right. and maybe obama some people would say was in the opposite quadrant although i think he was more whole uh, than this leader so so you want leaders who are whole who have that capacity uh or as certainly are close to that and can you know all that can be cultivated that's the great thing about this it's not just that you're born like iq is something you're born with analytical intelligence but emotional and spiritual intelligence can be grown and systems intelligence likewise these capacities once you become aware of that and what you need to do to cultivate the other can certainly be enhanced so we need the right kinds of leaders i think to me that's the greatest uh impact is the consciousness of the leader that ultimately impacts the uh, the, the lived experience uh, within that organization so the acronym that i use uh, the word is selfless we need leaders who are selfless which means they have transcended the self they are not there fulfilling a personal agenda through this leadership role they have in, in a way transcended that they were they become not only self actualized but gone beyond that to be self transcendent they're now in service so they're servant leaders okay it's not their ego it's not their lack of things or you know their uh, sort of neediness etc driving that but it then stands for strength uh energy and enthusiasm which comes from having purpose and meaning uh, long term orientation flexibility which is part of the shakti model 
love and care. They have to be coming fundamentally. So again, strength and love, right? Masculine, feminine, both of those together. Emotional systems and spiritual intelligence. So it stands for all of those qualities. I think if we get the leaders, not only the CEO, but also the uh, all the leaders at any level need to embody that. That's what it means to be a leader in a conscious company is to be selfless and to be a wise, full of tough love. And then you consciously pay attention to the culture. And the culture should have the elements of caring and trust and fun and all of that. But also, it's as Neelima said, needs to have accountability, right? And um, so what we want is, and there's a nice tool for this that Richard uh, Barrett has created, the Barrett Values Framework, which looks at full spectrum consciousness. So it, it identifies seven levels of consciousness that can exist in us as well as in organizations, starting from Maslow's basic levels of survival, right, safety, etc., and then success and then significance and then, you know, purpose and etc., and all the way up to service to humanity. So a full spectrum consciousness actually includes and transcends all of those levels. In other words, it doesn't just move up and says all about service to humanity and we don't care about survival and, you know, and, and, and uh, efficiency. You have to have that. That's your foundation and base. Conscious business is still a business, right? You still have to do those things right. But you don't stop there. Most businesses just stop there. They don't tap into those higher reaches where the real powerful motivations and capacity, human capacities lie are up there. But you have to do those basic things too. Right? So make sure that we're paying attention to all levels of consciousness. And as I said, there's a pretty... A uh, straightforward tool that allows us to look at our culture and make sure that we are in fact embodying all of those things, and so the leaders then consciously pay attention to that culture and make sure that that's that's happening. So the lived experience is aligned with the words and the language that we use to talk about what we aspire to. Neelima, would you have anything to add to that? Uh, you know, Raj has all his wonderful acronyms and so on. So I just, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh, a very simple one from the Chinese um, Taoist uh, thing would be for anything to work and succeed or grow, you need the seed and you need the soil at a minimum, right? And then things happen. So if you're starting a company, what is the seed and what is the soil, right? Uh, the conscious seed would be the conscious leader and make sure you, you hire the right kind of team. You know, you buy good seeds, you'll have a good crop, okay? Um, but it's not enough to find and hire the right people. Uh, it's equally important to then till the soil and nurture the soil, which is the culture of, um, you know, making sure it's flexible enough, you know, it's being watered regularly, it's being tended regularly you're getting the weeds out from time to time you're making sure there's enough sunlight happening you know so uh, you know even the purpose is I would put therefore as part of the overall culture you know does the does the soil have a sense of uh, supporting the seed uh, with with a with a purpose that everyone can uh, buy into uh, with an inclusive culture, that's also diverse, that everyone feels uh, they belong in and can contribute to. So, yeah, I guess at a minimum, if I had, you know, I have this, I like to just bring things down to their, may say, you know, uh, mutually exclusive, collectively exhaustive minimum thing. And I love Eastern 
frameworks for that. So the concept of the Tao, which is as minimum as yin and yang, seed and soil. So at that level of chunk, you know, the, the foundational level of chunk, I would look at it at these two, as these two things. Uh, do we have the seed and do we have the soil? Don't miss one for the other. So... I know a lot of people who are part of this community because we have a group uh, and we discuss a lot. There's a lot of pushback that people get. For example, these seven levels of consciousness that you mentioned, Raj, at the top is service to humanity. That's the highest, that's the highest that you can do. Once, once, I'm not sure what all the ones in between are, but I'm sure at some point it's, you know, you, you realize yourself, your own purpose, and then you, you're able to share that in the service of others. When those kinds of concepts get mentioned, in existing cultures and existing companies, there's a lot of pushback from the leaders. And I've experienced this myself because the pushback is typically, look, we've got to get our numbers done. You know, we've got to make sure we get through this quarter and then the next quarter, and we've got to hit our numbers and we've got to make sure that we're generating revenue. And we don't have time for this. We don't have time for, you know, sitting and talking and, you know, talking about levels of consciousness. Like this is not, not practical. What's the response to this kind of pushback? Well, uh, you've got leaders with, uh, with, with a lower level of consciousness there. You know, hitting our numbers is one of the most uh, dangerous ways uh, to lead, to be driven by that. And again, you go back to, uh, to ancient wisdom, right? The Buddha said, do not be attached to a cherished outcome. Because the minute you put that down as the number we need to hit, you're going to engage in wrong actions, almost guaranteed, right? Because you need to hit that number and therefore do whatever it takes, hit the number, we achieved our goal. Well, what is that going to then, you talk about seeds, right? You've planted seeds for something else to happen in future quarters, right? So if you focus on those cherished goals, you're going to engage in those actions. So you turn that you focus on the right actions consistently, and the outcomes and the numbers will be what they are meant to be. And they'll take care of themselves. And they, in fact, may be far better. They may be different, but they are the right outcomes given your actions. So I think that takes a consciousness and an understanding. It also takes, in today's world, uh, what we call courageous patience. You know, we're, we've gotten into this, this metabolism of Wall Street is now so short-term oriented, quarterly, you know, all of that, the numbers. Uh, that you know, too many CEOs do not have the courage or the wisdom to be able to withstand that. You know, they just become part of that system. But the great conscious leaders do have that. You know, whether it's Jim Senegal of Costco or Herb Kelleher, all of them. You know, they basically say, "This is what we're about. This is what we're going to be doing. This is how we're going to go about it." And if you don't believe in that, please do not invest in us. They actively encourage people not to invest because investors are not only investing money, they should be investing their heart and soul and energy and you know, they should have their own purpose through which uh, that, that money is a way of manifesting a purpose uh, in life. So um, you have to have that courageous patience. You have to be able to stay focused on your purpose and your values. And at the same time, you, you know, it is still a business, so you, you're not neglecting the processes and the efficiency and all of those kinds of things, uh, but, but you're integrating that. So Again, I think leaders who don't get it, who continue to operate with that, they are always looking at the urgent and not what's important. I mean, that's just bad leadership. A true leader is somebody who's able to create a vision, 
beyond what most people even imagined is possible and then help us to get there as opposed to massaging the numbers quarter after quarter and having a time horizon that's three, four years because that's how long they probably will be CEOs and they just need to make sure their stock options are worth as much as possible by the time they leave. I mean, that's, you know, they are not leaders. Those are tyrants. They're using other people to achieve their personal goals. So if you have the wrong kind of leaders, that's what you're going to get. So you need leaders with with all those qualities that we've we've talked about. And these companies are going to die. These companies are going to be left behind, you know. I mean, there's a movie, Dead Man Walking. I think these are dead companies walking that continue to operate in this way. They will be overtaken by more conscious companies in the world. You know, your, uh, finally, your research is its own uh, answer, right? That uh, companies who follow the tenets of conscious capitalism, they are not just successful, they are widely successful. They are nine times more successful or 11 and a half times more successful. So right there, you have this incredible business case, the numbers, uh, you know, you don't, you're not poorer for being good. You're almost wildly richer for being good. And not just financial, but also we we talk about eight kinds of wealth that businesses create or destroy. You know, businesses also can destroy wealth as we saw in the economic crisis and uh, other times. But it's also intellectual capital, it's social capital, it's emotional well-being, spiritual well-being, ecological well-being, the impact on the culture, the impact on, on people's bodies and health. These are all the outcomes, consequences of how we operate. And, you know, we act like money is the only game in town. You know, there are other games in town. And some of those actually matter a great deal, and maybe even more than money. So that's what we've got caught up in this this great illusion around business that it's all about money and it's all about, you know, immediate outcomes and so forth. And that's just causing so much harm and so much suffering. I mean, I'm writing a book on healing right now, the healing organization. And uh, I'm in the section of the book where you're making the case that traditional business causes suffering because a lot of people resist that idea. But if you look at the data, it's overwhelming. You know, heart attacks are higher on Monday morning. 20%. A new book called uh, Dying for a Paycheck by Jeffrey Pfeffer at Stanford tried to estimate the number of incremental deaths every year due to the way in which we work, our toxic work environments, cultures. 120,000 extra deaths a year just in the U.S. due to the way in which we work. Now, this is not counting the 8 million deaths a year that happen worldwide due to pollution. A lot of it has to do with the way in which we run our businesses, right? It's 15 times more people are killed by that than by wars and murderers and terrorists put together. So there's a lot of suffering that, you know, we, we, we account for everything. We put a price on everything except suffering. And the human cost of doing business is so extraordinarily high. People have this one life and they're sacrificing so many aspects of it and so much of it in terms of years. And it's a multi-generational impact we're having on those families. Their children are affected and therefore the children's children. I mean, it's just, you know, you set in motion a series of uh, forces that cause so much damage. And it's it's unconscionable, borderline criminal, I think, to operate that way. You know, doctors and lawyers get sued for malpractice if they use obsolete information or they're not the right approach, right? And leaders and managers continue to... Uh, run companies in ways that are deeply harmful and they'd serve, you know, sometimes suffering can serve a higher purpose. There is such a thing as noble suffering. 
if your suffering can prevent a huge amount of suffering somewhere else, that was worth it. All of this suffering is serves no higher purpose. There is no inherent nobility in having an employee suffering at your work site just because you are that callous or indifferent or ignorant to know any better. Right? So one thing that uh, I think a lot of people, a lot of people intuitively feel that this is the right way, but they don't have the experience and they don't have the, the academic backing or the research. Could you mention a little bit more for the sake of those people to give them the understanding that yes, this is the right way. This is this does lead to more success. Neelima, you mentioned that uh, companies that embody these values are nine to eleven times more successful. Can you share? Can either of you share with us more about this data that supports the fact that companies that follow these models and these values do tend to do better than companies that follow these these other more traditional masculine, non-feminine models? Well, so the book that uh, Neelima is referring to is called Firms of Endearment. Uh, which I wrote in 2007 and did a second edition in 2014. So we had 28 companies in the original uh, study with 18 public and 10 private. And those companies outperformed by 9 to 1 over a 10-year period. The second edition, we had a lot more data on many more companies. First one was case study driven. So we have 72 companies in there, which includes private and public, but larger number. And then we tracked it over a longer period of time. So we found a 7.7 times outperformance over a 20-year period. And what uh, what kind of outperformance, just in terms of revenue? Uh, this is in terms of stock price. So we look, for public companies, the standard measure is is stock price appreciation, right? So if you had invested in that versus the broad market, the S&P 500, you would have performed 7.7 times better uh, than the market, right? So there's that and there's tons of others, not just this, my studies, but lots and lots of them. There's, there's a report called The Purposeful Company that people can find on the web that has about... Uh, it has a table with about 40 different studies cited within it that found links between various aspects of this. So this includes employee engagement, right? And employee loyalty and no turnover and customer engagement and customer advocacy and support. So for you know all of those things, how they link to performance, uh, ethical operation, purposeful companies, environmental, social, and governance types of things. So all of these things individually and then collectively all lead to higher performance. And it's, it's logical. You know, these companies have to spend less money on marketing. They don't need to convince customers that what they're doing is good or their products are good. I mean, you know, people can experience them and they get positive word of mouth and word of web. Employee turnover is dramatically lower. So I was at a supermarket in, in Spain a few weeks ago and it's the leading chain that they have a turnover of 2.5%. Now the industry average is over 100% employee turnover. Okay, this is 2.5%. Costco is 7%, Walmart is 70%. Walmart has to hire 2 million people to replace those who left every year. So the amount of productivity and, and uh, commitment and engagement and all that is through the roof. Lower legal costs, lower administrative costs. You know? All kinds of, you, you spend money where it makes a difference. Give people a decent wage and good benefits. Don't squeeze your suppliers. Enable them to be innovative and profitable. But you don't waste money on excessive marketing and employee turnover and legal costs and you know, all this sort of stuff. So, uh, it's, so it really does work. And in terms of how to do this, so we have a new book that just came out a few weeks ago called The Conscious Capitalism Field Guide, uh, Tools for Transforming the Organization. So that's uh, 
for each of those pillars, we've got four chapters and it tells you how to do that and some tools and ways in which you can go on that journey. Uh, whatever size company you happen to be, whether you're a startup or an existing company, there's a sort of a roadmap now that can be used for that. So again, from personal experience, I just want to say that working at a company that embodies these values, my productivity has shot through the roof because instead of being constantly checked on, am I doing the right thing? You know, is, um, is there someone on top of me who's kind of monitoring every single step that I'm taking? I've been given the autonomy and the freedom and the trust to do what I think is right. And I have done the best work of my life working at a company where I have the freedom to work on these things, which is the opposite at any other company where when I was constantly being driven by numbers, it was just, it was causing so much stress and anxiety that I was, I was, I, I don't know, maybe a third to half as productive as I've been at a company like this. So I can definitely say from experience that uh, my, my personal experience supports the kind of research that, that you're saying. And for my final question, aside from your book, Shakti Leadership, if there was one resource that both of you could recommend to our listeners to help them succeed by putting people first, what would that be? Whether it's a book, a video, an experience, anything. Let's start with you, Neelima. Well, I know Raj has written Everybody Matters, which answers directly to your question of uh, a company succeeding because it put people first. So uh, that's the best example I can think of. Maybe Raj wants to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I was also, it was a profoundly moving experience for me to be involved. And I'm just telling the story, but the leader, Bob Chapman, who through a series of awakenings, uh, transformed from a traditional business leader who had an undergraduate and an MBA degree from uh, leading business schools. And, you know, he, ma- he was taught how to manage, so he managed people. And he did all the things, you know, laid off and didn't really care about the people. They were just a means, you know, were focused on the numbers. And then he had these awakenings, starting at a wedding in a, in a church of his uh, friend's uh, daughter. And the awakening on the inside there was, you know, everybody is somebody's precious child. If my friend's daughter came to work for me, I would make sure that she's not only happy and safe, but also growing and challenged and, you know, thriving. And he would do the same for my son. But why would I not do that for somebody else's daughter? Everybody deserves that. So that insight became uh, sort of one of their mantras. And then the idea of inspiring people, again, of an awakening at a church where the sermon lifted the entire congregation up and inspired them to be better human beings in less than 30 minutes. And Bob's inside that day was, you know, I've got people for 40 hours every week. What am I doing to inspire them? And he said, realize it's nothing. And the realization that our opportunity to inspire people is a hundred times greater than the church's if we change the way we operate in business, right? And, and so forth. So turning towards uh, treating people and ultimately the way they describe it now, we measure success by the way we touch the lives of people. And that's, you know, if you had to just use one touchstone to say, does this impact the lives of people in a positive way or not? All the people, not just employees, their children, families, customers, communities. I mean, the entire towns. He has bought a hundred companies and never sold a single one. He doesn't really buy so much as adopt them. You know, it's like when you adopt a child, it's not going to say after a while, okay, we're going to get rid of these three and keep those seven. <laughs> uh, and he's still acquiring 10 to 12 companies a year and he's 72 years old. I was just with him in Wisconsin last week and I've had this dialogue with him before. Why is he so driven? You know, and he's, he's flying all over the world. I mean, I spent a week in Europe with him 
went to nine countries and visited 15 uh, companies in seven days. And he said, you know, I don't have, I don't know how much time I have. And on my deathbed, I will not be proud of the machines we made, but I will be proud of the lives we touched. And so that got me thinking, you know, all businesses want to grow. But the question I ask is, why do you want to grow? And if the answer is rooted in ego and hunger for power and more money and more, all of that, I mean, to me, that's an empire building energy. Are you trying to build an empire here? Empires got built on conquest and on suffering, you know, taking over, right? Wars. I mean, that's how all those so-called great empires got built. And what happened to them? They caused all this suffering. And then what happened once the, uh, the emperor died? I mean, they fell apart. There was no lasting positive impact. So are you, are you building an empire or are you spreading a ministry? And what Bob is doing is really spreading a ministry. He's got a way of running that business which actually improves lives for everybody it touches. And therefore, he knows that he needs to take this to as many people as possible, right? So that's why, the, you know, with all the money in the world and, you know, uh, et cetera, he's still driven. There's a beautiful line in Hamilton, you know, where he wrote 52 uh, Federalist Papers in, in six months. I'm sorry, he wrote 26 of the 52 Federalist Papers. And the line is, why do you write like you're running out of time? You write day and night like you're running out of time. You fight day and night. And he said, I don't know how much time I have. I need to do this, you know. There's a sense of urgency to this. So again, are you spreading a ministry or are you building an empire? And I think that's really the question for business. In, you know, if you're spreading an empire, that's almost like a form of cancer that you're spreading. You know, the more you grow, the worse life gets for more and more people. Whereas if you're spreading a ministry, the life gets better. And I you know there's some great examples, like in India, I was in a Kalinga, right, in Orissa, where Nilima is originally from, actually. And the emperor Ashoka had his awakening there. He went down on that battlefield and saw those dead bodies and people still alive or dying. And that river, you know, which was running red with blood. And he had, yeah, it's now called Mercy River, right? And he had that awakening, oh my God, what am I doing? all this suffering and why am I causing this? And he completely renounced all forms of violence and, uh, and dedicated the rest of his life to spreading. He became Buddhist and he, he was responsible for the spread of Buddhism all through Asia, right? So he went from that empire energy to, I mean, what's been the lasting legacy of Ashoka is not the empire he built. It's the fact that he spread, you know, this Buddhist philosophy around the world, right? So he converted that into a ministry. I think that's what we need. We're so comfortable using military language in business. Everything comes from, you know, strategy, tactics, operate, capture market share and aim for this and shoot for that. And and yet when we use language like healing ministry, people go, oh, why, why are you bringing that kind of language? <laughs> <laughs> that's not practical. That's going to... That sounds religious. Yeah. I, oh, it's ministry just means to to minister to somebody, to care for them, right? To right. heal them, to heal them, you know? So I think you build a healing organization and then spread it like a ministry. And you have an obligation to, to do that, I think. Those are profound words to end on. Thank you so much for taking the time, both of you. And where can people go to learn more about each of you and the work that you're doing? Well, there's shaktileadership.com and we have consciouscapitalism.org. And uh, my website is rajasodia.com. So yeah, there's plenty of stuff out there. Well, thank you so much for sharing this profound wisdom. I know it's going to have a major impact on our listeners. Thank you for taking the time. You're welcome. You're welcome. Welcome, David. Thanks for that.
Thanks for listening, my fellow human. We know how fast-paced life is. And so if you're listening to this on your daily commute, or while running, or even cooking, you can always go to hotjar.com slash humans and look for today's episode. That's where you'll find access to all the resources and humans we talked about, the full transcript of the conversation, and even links to related episodes. And if you like today's episode, please help us out by leaving your honest rating and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. The more honest feedback we get, the more we can improve the show for you, and the more this podcast will be discovered by other humans. It's a win-win situation. Until next time, take care and be human.